if you're giving a piece of advice to somebody who isn't a lawyer, don't write to them like they're a lawyer. And welcome to today's episode of Keeping It Civil, the legal, regulatory and current affairs podcast from Hassan's international law firm limited in Gibraltar. I'm Selwyn Figueres, and today we talk about the premium clients place on advice provided in plain English by lawyers and other advisors. It is something that's probably more relevant today than at any point in the past. In the context of the growing presence of artificial intelligence tools becoming available to the public at large, there's challenge and opportunity in equal measures for lawyers who are often characterized as being out of touch or too hung up on unnecessarily complicated or highfalutin language. Yes, I'm a lawyer and I just used highfalutin. Uh, Moving on, the context today is the emergence of AI tools for the masses which speak plainly, even if they are sometimes also just plain wrong. And so, what is it about lawyers and so-called lawyer speak? Does the path from student to lawyer influence a lawyer's approach during one's professional career? Also today, we're going to be discussing what it takes to produce a code of conduct for the legal profession in Gibraltar. The draft code of conduct for lawyers here, as required by the Legal Services Act, was published in December last year, following a publication of an initial draft and a consultation process. Following further representations, the date from which the code of conduct is going to apply to the legal profession here has been pushed back to the 1st of May. We'll discuss some of what it contains and its potential impact. Joining me in the studio today to discuss all this is Graham Jackson, a partner at Hassan's specialising in tax. He is the co-presenter of the excellent podcast, International Tax Bites, with Harriet Brown from Old Square Tax Chambers, and he also recently became the inaugural chairman of the recently established Gibraltar Association of Tax Advisors. Graham's path to law was not, as some might describe it, conventional. He first qualified in English and philosophy at Keele University in 1993, before running the family printing business for some nine years. You then came to Gibraltar at that point, so welcome, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. Well, how I arrived in Gibraltar. Oh, yeah. hello, by the way. Um, <laughs> how, I, how I arrived in Gibraltar. Well, what, what actually happened um, was there was an argument about where I was going to go on holiday. Um, and the person I was going to go on holiday with wanted to go somewhere that was sunny. And I wanted to go to Budapest because it had lots of history. And the compromise was that um, Jib had lots of history and it was sunny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, good so combo. we came. It was. I remember going to the to the in in the days when you used to go to a travel agent, going to the travel agent and getting the travel brochure and taking it home and having a look at it. And it was, uh, it was uh, Jib. Jib was listed and came to Jib. Stayed in the Bristol Hotel. It was nineteen ninety nine. It was February. It didn't rain, which um, is odd for February. Yeah, uh, it didn't rain. And I remember thinking within within about five minutes of arriving, I didn't, how how on earth do I get to to live in this place. In fact, I'll, the, the first image I've got of Gibraltar in my mind is when you come to the top of the uh, the steps when you're leaving the plane. Mm, and it was yeah. a heavy Levanta day. It was one of those days where it was like the, the Levanta looks like it's on, that makes the, the rock look like it's on fire. Yeah. And I just remember looking up and thinking, oh my God, look at that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and sort of that was it. And then sort of went, put the stuff in the hotel, immediately went out had a cup of coffee in the Copacabana and asked the barman, what do I have to do to live here? And he introduced me to somebody that explained it to me. And then after that, spent spent three years thinking, I want to go and live there. I want to go and live there. I want to go and live there. And then eventually moved here in 2002. Oh, so it was three years between first coming here and eventually ending up here. Yeah, came back every year in those three years and uh, really... Really got my feet under the. And seat. so you joined Line when you when you came after those three years, or were you yeah, elsewhere so, first? So when I arrived, I was a printer, um, and I 
didn't know what a company secretary was or what a trust and company service provider was or what tax was or well I knew what tax was because I paid it but I didn't know anything <laughs> technical about it yeah yeah and um and I got a job at line with the de- with the then CEO Desmond Rioch right okay Desmond Rioch fantastic gave, gave me a chance and then I came moved through the firm I went from there did two and a half years there then I went to work in the funds team as a paralegal with with our funds partner James Lassery when the funds industry was basically me and him and a couple of people at Isla's. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, for, for various reasons, I had to go back to England for a couple of years. Then I came back, um, finished my training as a solicitor under then tax partner Chris White. Right. Then when he retired, I, I sort of moved on and up and uh, recently, recently, two years ago, finished my so, uh, advanced diploma in international taxation. And I do a lot of, Sort of outreach. I try and communicate issues yeah. to the to the wider group. I think as a as a profession integral to the challenges that are coming means that we need to upskill from a tax perspective mm-hmm. because things are just changing so quickly. Yeah, I mean it's yeah it, it certainly is. I mean I remember being at a step conference a couple of three years ago. I think it was, and uh, one of the one of the speakers was talking about you know what tax would be in 2025, 2026, and I was thinking to myself, we don't know what's happening next week, let alone three or four years down the line, and so. I mean, I suppose that that rings a little a little hollow because it's such a dynamic space, right? Yeah. So, so essentially, a hundred years ago, the um, the global tax system was designed by the League of Nations, and the OECD is completely changing it uh, as we speak. So, the you may have seen uh, the sort of idea of a global minimum tax being floated. Yeah. That completely rewrites the rules um, because of the way it's structured. I mean, there's even some question about whether it's permissible under double taxation treaties, a thing called the UTPR, the, the under-tax payment rule, which techie, geeky people will know what I mean. Mm-hmm, but it, mm-hmm. it's just the thing that we need to know is it's a massively radical departure from, from what's gone before. The idea of um, tax sovereignty being something that you exercise in isolation it, the concept of sovereignty as responsibility rather than sovereignty as of independence from interference is changing the way that international systems are designed. And if you are a bad neighbour, you become a pariah at the moment, whereas under the old sort of what, what can be described as the Westphalian concept of sovereignty from mm. the Treaty of Westphalia, mm-hmm. um, that's... That's sort of fading into the distance. That's what nations in the 19th century did. And now uh, jurisdictions are part of a community and that community has rules. That's interesting, and and I mean that's a very good segue talking about the treaty with Spalia and uh, in in terms like that, uh, it, it's a good segue into you know one of one of the issues we wanted to talk about today, which was about lawyers speaking in plain English, right? And yeah. uh, how how your how one's path through from student to professional will influence uh, the way that professional approaches uh, communication, which is so important, right? And so. Your approach is, was not the standard three years undergraduate degree, the one year training, and then straight into into it as as many of us here in in this firm were trained. You, uh, yeah, personally. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I I mean, you could describe it as conventional, but actually, there's so many who are now not following that path that I don't know whether that still applies. But yeah, I mean, it it does impact, right? How you approach uh, communication and what you 
produce as much as what you expect to to see produced for you? Yeah, so I think that I would, I mean, the way I understand language is that language is about communicating. Mm -hmm. So you can either communicate how clever you think you are, or you can communicate information about the subject that you're talking about. If you're if you're sort of using language which is not in common currency and you're writing to a lay client, that just doesn't make sense to me. Mm. It the language that you use needs to be technical enough to be precise, but it does not need to be like you're a character in a Dickens novel. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to say here and after. Yeah. Who the hell says that in 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 the real world? Yeah, yeah. You don't need to say that and all those other words that uh, the said. I mean, like said yeah. is something that just drives me insane. Like, sure. why are you doing that? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, it's just not necessary. And I think when we spoke before we before we started recording, we we both agreed that it's not actually impressive either, mm. because the lay client looks at it and thinks, "Why is this bloke writing like this?" Yeah, yeah. And if you're writing to another lawyer then they already know those words, right? They're not impressed by them. It's yeah. just what all you're doing is you're saying, I'm part of the community that you're part of. I mean, it's, sure. like, it's almost like a virtue signaling. It's not virtue signaling, but it's, it's yeah. a membership statement. You're yeah. using yeah. your language to say, I am a lawyer. And well, great, you're a lawyer. Your certificate says that. Shakespeare's lady yeah. protesting too much. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Absolutely right. Um, and, 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 of, and of course, having been, having run a business for nine years as you did, I imagine you were also on the receiving end of advice at some, you know, on occasion, yeah. and and that that also helps form in your mind what it is actually is helpful to a business owner and what isn't. It is. I mean, you d- you don't need anything from your lawyer that means you have to go and check what it means. It doesn't help. No, that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If you're giving a piece of advice to somebody who isn't a lawyer, don't write to them like they're a lawyer. Yeah. Why would you do that? Yeah, we need to be able to turn it on and off. There are times when it's suitable, like in court papers, I would imagine it's better that, you know, because that's the way the court works. Hmm. But if you're writing a memo for a a lay client to understand what their tax residence status is or something like that, if you start, start off with that kind of approach, then Hmm. they're just, they're they're not going to pay attention. They're not going to get the nuances and they're not going to see it. You need bullet points and big red hands pointing at things that are <laughs> yes, important. Absolutely. Right. Otherwise, they're just not going to put it. So if you if you see my advice that I give out now, yeah. I've gone away from the formal opinion letter. I mean, you know what they look like, sure, right? Sure, I sure. write memos yeah. and then put all the please don't sue us bit at the end. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> put all that at the end. But it's a memo. It's got bullet points and headings and bits in bold and indented paragraphs. Yeah. They're not number. I don't number. Mm. I mean, my co-presenter on International Tax Bites would be outraged if she heard that I don't number my paragraphs because she's a barrister and she does love a numbered yes, paragraph. Yes, of course, of course. But I think it's much more. I think it's much more accessible. Mm. Um, nobody wants to write a memo or a, an opinion letter that looks like um, it's a philosophy joke coming now. Yeah, that looks like uh, the Tractatus by Wittgenstein with all his silly little numbers that he puts on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the word show spelled S-H-E-W. Uh, there's, right. there's just no need for that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it's just time we moved away from it. I, I've previously articulated this idea, this idea, and that when I write, I write, I, I aim to write in a way mm. that my dad would understand. Yeah. Because my dad was a reasonably 
sensible and intelligent guy. He wasn't particularly well educated because the war happened, so he left school when he was 14, but he'd read and he understood and he could grasp concepts if they were explained to him. So if I'm explaining the concepts well enough for my dad to understand them, Mm. then I'm explaining it well enough for any reasonably intelligent person to understand. I mean, I think it's, I mean, from my own personal experience, and I trained, I I did my years, uh, the years bar between 2000 and 2001, and that was in the immediate aftermath of the Wolf Reforms in 1999. And... You know, even though it had literally just happened and we were talking about access to justice and plain English, clearly it was a profession being brought into the modern world, kicking and screaming, because I still remember the hours and hours of opinion writing and drafting, which was based around the traditional con- construct of an opinion and, and, and drafts um, and that kind of language, which, despite what was being taught, because it had to be taught because it was a new environment, was still holding on to, of course, what has been, what had been the you know the the way things were done for forever. And so, I think maybe I mean it's it hurts to say, it, but twenty two years on because it's that long since I qualified, um, there is an element of that. And I and, and you know personally, it's something that you know it, for me was a bit of a challenge simply because I trained at the time when I did. But uh, but I, I'm you're absolutely right that clients these days are far less patient far less accommodating yeah. uh, of that than they used to be. It's deeply ingrained in in us, right? So, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think what we need to do on occasion, if you ever get a chance to think, which lawyers generally don't have the time to don't do this, right? <laughs> they, they think, but to think about the, think about the language that they're writing yeah, yeah. Um, is – is look at a sentence and ask yourself, what's that word doing there? Mm. What does it actually do? So one of the great examples, I mean, if you remember a guy called Peter Rodney, who was the, you remember Peter Rodney? He was the, he was legal advisor to the Plain English campaign and he, he worked at Hassan's for a bit and then he went him, off yeah. to the legal support group. Yeah. And he tried his hardest to get the Gibraltar profession to write in plain English, but, you know. No, it's quite uh, hard. <laughs> <laughs> and we always lagged a little bit behind yeah, the, the UK exactly. in terms of picking up. But uh, he, he explained to me once, why do you say for and on behalf of? What's the behalf doing? Is it for or is it not? Yeah. 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 You don't need to say and on behalf of. Yeah. It's just there because that's the form that we use. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to be an idiot, idiot about it. For and on behalf of doesn't hurt anybody. No, of course, but, of course. But it's an example of yeah. why is it there? Yeah. What does it add? And it's and just if, a question of... If you've got it buried in paragraphs and you've got complex, you know, saying things... I mean, that's, a, that's one, of the main prob- one of the big problems of, of, of English is that we have words that derive from Latin and words that derive from Anglo-Saxon, and we tend to say them next to each other mm. just to make sure we've covered any nuances, differences <laughs> between the two. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I could talk for hours about that. Yeah, think, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. But absolutely. It, it, I think it can be a bit Harry Potter, and we need to move away from it. Yes, I think, I think you're probably right, actually. And, I, and, and whilst there'll be resistance, I think... For the most part, I think the, the younger lawyers are probably, as they come through the ranks, are, yeah. are 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 arriving with a different mindset. Then you know they don't have that ingrained. I mean, we we trained at a time when um, you trained um, two thousand eight, two thousand eight as well. So yeah, I mean, there were still vestiges of that that we were that we were dragging along. Yeah, with but us. I I was I did a big part of my training contract in the north of England, right? You don't get away with doing that. Oh right, okay. <laughs> you don't, you, no, yeah, 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 yeah. you don't get to. Right. You, they, they, you know, when you when you're dealing with people from. Um, Doing right to buy of council houses. Yeah, you know, no, you're not going to get away with yeah, that. Yeah, you I can, just can't. Yeah, I can see that. They'll just know. ignore you. Yeah, and you know, um, 
one one other thing that that we wanted to discuss was, and I, I think it's a good point to to make the switch because um, we were discussing before we we started recording how you know this code of conduct that we've now got for for lawyers yeah. in Gibraltar, which is um, which is something that's coming down and will be in force as such from the first of May. Is, is one that's caused a, a, a lot of discussion in the profession, of course, as you might have expect, during, expected during the consultation, yeah. and now even post the publication of the of the of the code, it is important, isn't it? And it's something that you've that you've alighted upon. That I've alighted upon. <laughs> you see, this is exactly what I'm talking about. It's ingrained, right? Nice. Uh, <laughs> the only time I've ever seen the word alighted written down, right, is an entry race course, right, which is right. near where I come from. Right, the right, sign right. says "alight yeah. here for yeah. the race course." <laughs> you will forgive me because, as as well as a lawyer, I'm also I've also been a frontline politician. So you can imagine that it is going to be well, tougher than that. Just means being a lawyer, doesn't it? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. I can't think of any that aren't, are there? Well, there are some. There are some. Um, but it, it's important that a, a code of conduct, the code of conduct, you know, covers or is reflects the jurisdiction and, and and what we do, right? You have you have some clear thoughts on that, right? So I think I think that um, the fact that we have a fused profession mm. creates challenges which are unique to Gibraltar. I think that it is. I don't think that the New Zealand analogy is entirely complete is entirely um useful because what we have in jib is we have a series of what England would understand to be solicitors firms which are run by barristers mm-hmm. who understand the model of chambers but also want to make the money out of doing the conveyancing and the wills and the whatever, right? Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. so you couldn't. I mean, uh, it's the nature. A, of a chambers of twenty right? barristers here that's acting exactly like somebody in the Inns of Court would not would just wouldn't survive. There wouldn't sure. be enough work for yeah. them. Um, so I think that we we stand a sort of in a, in a, in a strange position. I think New Zealand is bigger, and therefore, well, I don't think it. It just is. Right? Yeah. Um, it's bigger. So so it does. Whilst it does have a fused profession. There are pe- people that work in what are discreetly chambers and people that work in what are discreetly firms. So mm-hmm. even though they may all have the same qualification or interchangeable qualifications, mm-hmm. the forms of practice are more like the UK. I, th- I think, and, and, and the reason I'm talking about New Zealand is because that's the model I understand that was used for the code yeah. of conduct. Mm-hmm. I think that... Um, as somebody who has been subject to a code of conduct throughout their period of qualification, because I'm an English solicitor, yeah. so I've always had an explicitly written code of conduct, which yeah. um, was not quite the position here, um, because that usual thing of... There were, actually, I would say the law was absolutely clear that lawyers in Gibraltar in, were governed by the English rules. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And I'll say it now. I'm a commissioner for oaths under Gibraltar law, even though I'm not a registered commissioner for oaths. That allows it, mm-hmm. yeah? Mm-hmm. Though I would never take any of my colleagues' work. <laughs> um, it's um, So having had a, a code of conduct throughout my profession and being trained right from the very start that this was some sort of, um, it was everywhere in what we do, mm-hmm. I'm not frightened by there being a code of conduct. I think that my code of conduct in England and the code of conduct that the solicitors, which are qualified under the SRA uh, regulation, that's Solicitors Regulatory Authority, um, 
they ha- our code of conduct is different, I think. It's a different approach because it's more principles-based. And I think that's probably a problem which arises from the fact that it's taken so long to turn the draft code of conduct into into legislation. It's taken a very long time. I don't understand why it's taken that long, but it, it's obviously a good reason. Um, so my, I look at my code of conduct in... Um, in England, and it essentially says, here are the principles that you need to apply. Mm. If you get it wrong, you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah? Um, whereas I think the approach that's taken is more, in this situation, you must do this. In this situation, you must do yeah, that. it's much more prescriptive. So it's much more prescriptive. Yeah. I'm not sure how helpful that is, um, but I think we're yet to see. I think there is some, still some debate Yes, in and, the profession, and, and likely further changes are due uh, on representations being made by the law council. To, yeah. to I think, um, I think, I think the biggest change that needs to happen in the Gibraltar profession is it needs to understand that solicitors are proper lawyers. Solicitors are more client facing in yeah. their training. In their training, sure. in their training, right? So, yeah. um, I was taught how to do an epitome of title for unregistered land. That's essentially what we do in Gibraltar. We don't have the same system as England because we don't have the Law of Property Act, yeah, 1920, yeah. whatever it is, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So I, you, you're not going to learn that in bar school. You're going to learn how to stand up and articulate yourself in front of a court. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I'm not saying solicitors are better. We have different skills. Mm. And I think what we should do as a profession in Jib is welcome the, the different skills that solicitors bring to the table. I think also ILEXs probably don't have the respect that they deserve. They are lawyers. I know they're recognised as lawyers by the new Legal Services Act, but mm. internally I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think to address some of the some of the, the shortcomings of training at the bar in, in the UK uh, – represented when you arrived as a lawyer because i remember when i qualified i qualified as a barrister in, in london and then sorry in cardiff and then when i arrived in gibraltar i was thrown in the deep end and you're like oh hang on i've learned yeah. nothing of most of what i'm doing um and there was no recourse there was no way that i could learn it other than being in the deep end and learning from the lawyers that i was working yeah. with and i was very fortunate that i had really good it was like an I, oral tradition right well, well exactly and i started and i and i i had i was very lucky to start with chris white as well in 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 that context and he was extremely good in that way but, very good trainer yeah very, very good. good trainer and and in recent years i can't remember exactly when it was that we established the course in the university that actually provides some kind of grounding for new lawyers in gibraltar about gibraltar law and gibraltar issues as well that's a massive step forward that's yeah. a massive step forward and that couldn't have happened without the university yes i mean so yeah yeah you absolutely know, right I, I don't think anybody anybody is surprised that I don't agree with everything that anybody says. Yeah, no, um, of course. But the university has radically changed the way that we can deliver training yeah. and education in Gibraltar. We can, I, I'm actually lecturing at the, on the MBA business law course at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the ability for people with knowledge, hopefully I've got knowledge, to stand up in front of a room of people yeah. that need to know things. Nobody has ever taught Gibraltar law before in any formal way. That's right. Which is great because that then means that our law, I know we're going to hopefully talk about um, writing things yeah, about yeah, the yeah, law yeah. in a moment, uh-huh. but it's a, law, a, a jurisdiction grows and becomes solid in a sense because it talks about its systems mm. and because it teaches its systems, because it creates um, qualifications, because it um, 
because it writes about its systems, because it has a national debate around yeah. what is this position, what is that position, and it's not scared to talk amongst itself. Mm. And then it develops itself as an independent, with a small i, yeah. jurisdiction, because, you know, England has been talking about the common law for a thousand years. Mm. Gibraltar doesn't really have a conversation about its law. No, because we just tend to talk about or read about the common law developments yeah, in, exactly. in the UK. And yeah. one of the, when I, I interviewed um, a guy called Johan Hatting, who's a South African uh, guy at Cape Town University, professor at Cape Town University, uh, for, for, my ta- for my podcast. And he and I'd ne- it never dawned on me before, every country has its own version of the common law. Ni- there's Nigerian common law. Mm. There's Tanzanian common law. There's South African common law. There's English common law. And as as those countries diverge and establish their own case law, they become independent of the yeah. mothership in, in, in England and Wales mm-hmm. and develop their own their own uh, their own tradition. And it was like it's it was like the scales fell from my eyes. I'm like, oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like there's there's a whole set of jurisprudence around tax avoidance in East Africa, which is different mm-hmm. from the jurisprudence in South Africa. Yeah. But they're both common law jurisdictions. They're both common law traditions, right? So until we start to talk and consider ourselves as good as the people mm. in London and that my article is worthy of reading as uh, in my field yeah. as as much as uh, as Harriet, my co-presenter, is in her field. I mean, she sure. writes – she's qualified in Jersey and in, and in England um, – you sort of start to th- think, you know, we, we we that'll be good for us. We'll be able to get better at mm. our law instead of cut and pasting bits of English law. And as our statutes start to diverge, and in the twenty years that I've been here, they have diverged mm-hmm. from England much more, much less. You see the, you know, we'll just take the UK oh, provision yeah. change. Uh, I, uh, in my lecture on um, business law the other day, I was talking about consumer protection, and that I can't remember which act it is, but there is an act that essentially just takes it's misrepresentation sorry misrepresentation mm-hmm. um our contracts and torts act and and the uk's um misrepresentation act the difference between the operative provision in gibraltar law is that somebody whoever did the did the redrafting mm. crossed out the word term and wrote the word provision in <laughs> really <laughs> and you see you see Some that total of the yeah, exactly you know and he yeah. got paid to have many thousand pounds for doing that <laughs> uh, but it's it, it's it that 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 is different now. I mean, yeah. it's not happening like that mm. anymore. And I think that's really healthy for us as a jurisdiction. It means that we're not reliant on the, we have to be reliant on ourselves then. Mm. But we can't just rely on call the silk. No, for sure, for in sure. England. And, I, and, I, and I wonder whether, you know, I wonder whether the this jurisdiction's uh, relatively glacial progress in that context in terms of having its own literature, you know, documenting its own story. Clearly, it's documented, but to a limited extent. But in terms of the law, in terms of our legislation and the le- and legislative framework, you're, it's likely that it's just down to a, a lack of volume of of people who can contribute to that story. Uh, and you know, I I expect that will happen more and more because you're right. We have evolved certainly in the last twenty years, and we are a very different place. And there are real distinctions now between Gibraltar and and and, and English law, and and that that documentate that the documentation of that is is very important because it's part of you know as we discussed offline nation building of sorts yeah. right yeah i think it's i think it's absolutely right uh, so i would be very 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 excited if um the law council decided that 
some sort of law journal, mm. however infrequent, even if it was only once a year. Yeah. Something that would publish locally peer-reviewed articles. Yeah. Uh, Jersey does it. I know Jersey does it. There's a Jersey mm -hmm. Law Review. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure, it, well, if Jersey's got one, then Guernsey will definitely have one because yeah. they're not going to let Jersey get over get one over them, are they? <laughs> um, but so there's no reason why we can't do that. Um, and that sort of public discussion, I think, is vitally important. Yeah, and I think it's it's something to be raised in industry associations as well. I mean, I think they have a role to play, right? And, you know, talking about associations, you just recently formed the Gibraltar Association of Tax Advisors, uh, yep. which you're chairing uh, in its in its first term. I imagine, you know, part of, part of the driver behind that is having engendering this kind of discussion about relevant issues and how you progress, right? Yes, I mean, yes, it is. And it also it also goes slightly to the same conversation we were having before about solicitors and barristers, solicitors yeah. being recognised and, yeah, and yeah. all that. Tax advisors are also a separate profession. Mm -hmm. um, tax advisors with a capital T and a capital A. There is a Chartered Institute of Taxation in the UK and uh, that does three qualifications. One's the Chartered Tax Advisor, which is very UK-based. One is the Advanced Diploma in International Taxation, which I've got and I would advise anybody who works in tax in Gibraltar to consider doing it um, because it is the gold standard international qualification. There's also a, um, a qualification done by IBFD, but it's less advanced. And um, the what we I was sort of talking to other people who are charter tax. Well, I'm not charter tax advisor, but talking to charter tax advisors in Jib, um, and we were sort of in a position where. The Gibraltar Society of Accountants were very welcoming. We There was a couple of us used to go to their tax faculty as, uh, a couple, there's four of us, uh, used to go to their tax faculty as observers. But it wasn't quite satisfactory because the GSA is a broad church. It takes in, a, in you know, everybody who's an accountant, whether you're doing the accounts for a local shop or whether mm. you're doing the accounts for um, a huge gaming company. That, that covers a wide breadth, so that's lots of different inputs. Um, so we thought that, uh, well, I mean, we like having lunch as well. I mean, that's clearly, <laughs> clearly a big part of well, it. Well, you've got to eat. Yeah, uh, <laughs> in a room together. Um, and so it was, we just felt that there was a space for, for, the, for the voice of the tax advisor, and we thought that we could add value. I mean, our, our aim is not, to, is not to sort of push anybody out. We, we still go to the GSA and we want to work in partnership with them, but provide a more technical voice and um, and also take into take in people who are in-house. So we have a, we have quite a few in-house CTAs in okay. Jib. Mm -hmm. um, they're they're welcome. Though we don't want it to be skewed completely. I mean, we have to we have to yeah. make sure that we don't just end up with like a hundred people who work for gaming companies and, mm -hmm. and me and Darren Anton. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> And in the context of the work of the association, which of course I, I know has only just begun, what do you see uh, on the horizon in terms of tax for Gibraltar as a low-tax jurisdiction and the global drive for harmonisation? Right. Okay. So I think that there are some clear challenges um, which are on the way. One of them is that... Um, the EU has changed the criteria for blacklisting on the EU blacklist, which now includes um, a, a, a system-wide criterion 
which um, is that the system should not, I can't remember whether it says encourage or permit, but it, it should not basically give the outcome of double non-taxation. And what double non-taxation is, is that you, ha- you carry out an activity in one jurisdiction, uh, you're, re- you're resident in another jurisdiction, and you, you organize it in such a way that you don't pay tax where you do the activity. Mm. Um, question for the tax geeks, you avoid establishing a permanent establishment, right? Mm-hmm. And then the jurisdiction in which you are resident does not then tax that income. And that is clearly leveled at territorial taxation ski, uh, ski, um, systems. And we have a territorial taxation system. There's nothing wrong with a territorial taxation system. It's an historical position. Hong Kong has something very similar. Hong Kong is leading the way on changing its system to take into account this challenge. I think that it will... that Those systems where they survive, Malta has a little bit of it, um, Cyprus has a little bit of it, a lot of the... There's lots of language tucked away in tax act, taxing acts that have sort of been handed down from from the British Empire, for want of a better word. Um, I, I think they're going to come under increasing pressure. We should guard against um, double non-taxation. Double non-taxation is the massive issue for the international community. Mm-hmm. And I think that it will come that either we have some sort of method to stop it working or stop it being uh, abused, or um, we're going to have to change the whole system. I think that's, frankly, uh, going to be an issue. Now, it's not something that I think will happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I think that it's not something that should cause panic. I mean, these things happen slowly, mm. but I think that it is definitely the direction of travel that the world wants a unified, a harmonized, I think it's probably it's the word you used before, yeah, yeah. a harmonized approach to taxation, and tax planning happens in the gaps between harmonization. Mm. If you are Germany and you have a company that's tax resident in Germany and it has a permanent establishment in Italy, mm-hmm. then you know the income is going to be taxed yeah. somewhere, yeah. right? Yeah. And you have mechanisms for, for making sure that you can't – there's gaps that can be played with between their definitions of permanent sure. establishment and stuff like that. But I think it's definitely moving us in the direction of making – everybody, uh, not moving Gibraltar, but moving the world in the direction of mm-hmm. making everybody follow the League of Nations 1923 um, model of residence, permanent establishment uh, as the basis of taxation and double taxation treaties. Our system was designed, or the model for our system was designed before that mm. to work with inside the British Empire where, you, where Gibraltar or Kenya or Tanganyika it would have been then, um, mm-hmm. didn't have a foreign department that could go out and sign tax treaties with other people. So you had a, a simplified system. Mm-hmm. And that simplified system has been acknowledged by the EU um, mm. in the cases that Gibraltar has been involved in. But I think that is the primary um, movement that I suspect will come in the next 10 years. And in, and in, that, and in that context, do you see it as, a, as clearly... I mean, it's a challenge just because any change can be a challenge, right? But yeah. Do you see opportunity there as well? I think um, it will I – th- I think what they'll do is they'll make it that if you stay the way you are, then you lose opportunities you've already got. So it will be about blacklisting. It will be mm. about um, du- double taxation on payments, withholding tax on payments to countries that have got this sort of system – 
I think that it will. So the, it's all about stick at the moment, right? Mm, sure. Um, but I think that what it will do, what it will do, is it will mean that as a profession, as a tax profession, we will get better and we will be taken more seriously. Because for too long, because we had such a simple system, and this is nobody's fault, we just yeah, had yeah, a simple system, simple right? System it was, so yeah, you'd course. go into a room and you'd meet with people and they'd be talking about permanent establishments and double this and triple yeah. that and whatever, and you just sat, sit there and think, oh, I have no idea what these people are talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And then they get to you and you go, oh, there isn't any tax. And that, <laughs> <laughs> which is great well, news. What that's what they want to hear, right? Yeah, that's yeah, what they want to hear. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think it will equip our people mm. better because they will have to learn things that everybody else is doing, and then we will be a more grown-up profession yeah. and a more grown-up jurisdiction. I think necessity is the mother of all invention, right? Yeah. And in Gibraltar, over the years, we've been we've been very good at adapting to a changing landscape, and this may be just one, the next challenge, uh, or one other challenge that we're going to have to respond to and uh, I'm, I'm certainly confident that uh, whatever comes down the line we're, we're up to it yeah no I mean definitely we are it's mm. not it, it isn't that we can't do it yeah. it's that we haven't had to yeah exactly and then it moves us as we spoke about before we did this it moves us away from being the people that sell the implementation yeah of planning yeah to being the people that are doing the planning because we're already in the middle of all the concepts yeah, that course. these people are dealing with. Yeah. It makes it will make us, you know, I, I will no longer be the standout guy because I'm the guy that can explain to you how a double taxation treaty works in mm. detail and have written essays about it and stuff like that. Mm. Everybody will be like that. Yeah. And that will be better for us as a profession. And we can charge more because we know more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, on that happy note. <laughs> um, you know, it's been a very interesting conversation, which was mostly in plain English. And uh, and, and and you're you're right to have pointed to 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 the to these challenges as opportunities as well. Um, Graham, thank you for, for joining me today. Uh, thank you very much to to the listeners, wh whoever you may be. We're probably still counting you on one hand. This is only, after all, the, only the third episode. Um, International tax bites. Or, um, um, what's that? Amplify your oh, voice. Oh, fantastic, yeah. fantastic. That's great. Well, hello to all the listeners from International Tax Bites as well. Um, we're, we're hoping to make this uh, a regular occurrence, post, posting new uh, episodes every week. So please, if you like what you've heard, Follow us uh, on social media as well to, to hear of, of new episodes. And if you've got any feedback, please, we'd be delighted to hear it. We're all on, on all the social media channels and we'll look forward to hearing from you then. Thank you very much, Graham. Um, it's been a pleasure and uh, we'll, we'll hear you the next time. Thank you.